Hey, let's open the Bible together to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, it's on page 923 if you're using the Bible there in the pew. If I've not yet met you, my name is Brian and I am one of the pastors here and part of my role is to serve as the lead pastor here at Foothills. It's a privilege to do that. Hey, there's a guy named Tom Rainer. Some of you may be familiar with him. Some of you, probably most of you are not. He's an author. Uh, he writes in uh, Christian materials, and uh, he's been a pastor. He was the founding dean of the Billy Graham School for Missions and Evangelism at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, years ago. He's retired. He does consulting for churches, and he writes a blog like so many people do. And on his blog some time ago, he, he wrote 25 silly things churches fight over. So I pulled out three. See if we can have a laugh, all right, because it's going to get serious. (laughs) All right, here's one of them. Whether or not to build a children's playground or use the land for a cemetery. How about this? A fuss when someone brought vanilla syrup for the coffee because it looked too much like liquor. My wife buys all that stuff. Our home looks like a little coffee bar on the thing. How about this one? I picked this one out especially. The appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. <laughs> our worship pastor doesn't have, where is our worship pastor? No, he's beardless. He doesn't, yeah, it doesn't, I don't know. Maybe we can find somebody to whom that applies. But, uh, I'm just saying. Anyway. When it starts to go gray, you know, you have, to, have you noticed that? Anyway. Hey, more seriously, right, more seriously, let's transition now, right, more seriously, in 2009, a new Christian denomination was formed. It's called the Anglican Church in North America. It was formed with some people who peeled out of the Episcopal Church in America and from the Anglican Church in Canada. The reason those people left those two bodies and formed a new church, a new denomination, was because there was, there was conflict over biblical teaching regarding uh, human sexuality and the necessity of faith in Jesus for salvation. So they formed a new denomination that believed those things. This May, the General Conference of the United Methodist Church is going to vote on a proposal that will allow for what's been termed a, a more traditionalist denomination to separate themselves from the UMC. And the issue is biblical teaching and practice regarding human sexuality. The text in front of us this morning, Acts 15, is is a theological debate in the early church. And and maybe you've had enough of church conflict and you're hoping, hey, I'm going to come to church on a Sunday morning. I want to hear about churches fussing and fighting with each other. And you may think, is there anything that could be possibly more boring than a theological debate or even maybe more pointless But I think that all of us can get on the same page when we say that we believe that truth matters. Truth matters. Decades ago, C.S. Lewis was writing about that, and he he gave an illustration. He said, suppose you come on someone who's dying of starvation, and you want to do something to to serve this man, to help this man, to help him live. But you don't have any medical training. You don't have any real knowledge of science in that regard. So you do the first impulsive thing you can think of. He's starving. He needs to eat. And so you start to feed this starving man and eventually he dies and Lewis says that's what comes from working in the dark without the truth someone has said that if Christianity is false it's of no consequence if Christianity is true it is of infinite consequence and importance the only thing that Christianity cannot be is of you know medium kind of importance medium it's not it's it's just moderately important This 
debate that we see in Acts 15 is, is a theological debate about who is saved. How is a person saved? And if truth matters and if eternal life and death are at stake, then getting the truth right about the message of salvation isn't just moderately important. It's infinitely important. And that's what the text gives us. So the big idea this morning is that the truth that people are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone must be made clear and lived with care. The truth that people are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone must be made clear and lived with care. And I think this text falls out three ways. There's this question that we begin with, who is saved, who can be saved, how can a person be saved? That question, the answer to the question, and then an application. And so uh, you'll remember a couple of weeks ago when we were in Acts, we took a little pause last week. When we were in Acts, we, we saw Paul and Barnabas in the city of Antioch. And they were reporting to that church all that God had done to open the door of faith, he says, to the Gentiles. But now a problem has arisen there in Antioch. Some people are visiting. Look at verse 1 from chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So you can circle that. That's, that's the question. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas, along with some of the others, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question, verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, declared all that God had done with them. And here it is in verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Now, this group of people here in Jerusalem, the, the folks in verse 1 probably came from them up to Antioch, or down to Antioch, I should say. And so now here they are in Jerusalem, and they're, they're rising up, and they're saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to obey the law of Moses. And so here's Peter and, or here's Paul and Barnabas teaching Gentiles that you come to salvation through faith alone in Christ, but then you have these Jewish Christians who are saying that's simply not enough. There's more to it than that. And why did they do that? Because these Jewish Christians have been brought up all of their lives being marked out from the Gentiles who lived around them. And they were marked out from them by circumcision and by keeping those particular laws about what to eat. And it made them distinct as God's people, this marking out. It, 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 it showed that they were the people of God. And so how in the world could a Gentile become part of the people of God without first becoming Jewish like they had been for generations and undergoing circumcision if you're a man and, and taking care of all of these other food laws? These men were teaching a message of salvation that you could term Jesus plus. Jesus plus. Jesus, in other words, is not enough for your salvation. You must add circumcision and keeping the law. Then you can be saved. And today there are churches that teach a Jesus plus message of salvation. And they tell you that God will justify you, make you right with him. They say that you're saved by grace through faith. And then there's a problem. You're saved by grace through faith and baptism. You're saved by grace through faith and your good works. It's a Jesus plus message of salvation. Are there people in those churches who are saved? I'm sure that there are. I've known some across the years. But beloved, I, I want to tell you that it's, it's really a miracle of God that people get saved in a church like that because they're not hearing the gospel clearly or correctly. They're hearing Jesus plus. And if we're going to teach the gospel rightly, and if eternal life and death are at stake, shouldn't we get it right? Doesn't truth matter? It does. 
And so we need to get the gospel clear and we need to get it right. I want you to think about the idea of adoption for a moment with respect to these Jewish Christians and kind of their posture and where they were at. We heard about adoption last week. It was the subject of the message. We've seen some Facebook stories of people who have adopted Adoption. So the legal ceremony has happened, right? Mom and dad gather up the kids and they go home and they get everything kind of squared away at the house and everyone sits down to the table to eat dinner together. And mom and dad say, okay, kids, we, we've got some house rules. We need to make sure that everyone is on the same page. And so you kind of lay out the house rules, right? And you, you, you give them some guidance, some direction and whatever those happen to be. Maybe it's, I'm not going to hit my brother on the head when I'm on stage in front of the church or something like that. I don't know what it is. <laughs> whatever it happens to be, right? So, or I'm going to pick up my, I'm going to put my bike away at night, right? I'm going to clean my room. Or, you know, I'm not going to fuss. I'm going to obey. I'm going to be grateful. Whatever those things are, all, all, those are all fine and good. And those kids can obey those, those rules, those house rules in one of two ways. They can say, okay, okay, I understand. This is what I have to do in order to stay in this house. This is what I have to do to stay and be part of this family. This is what I have to do. If she's going to be my mom, if he's going to be my dad, then I've got to do these things. Or they could obey just from the heart, just out of a sense of love that they have been receiving and care that they have been getting. And now they're growing in love and affection for this woman who has become their mother and for this dad, this man who's become their father. And just out of a heart of gratitude and love for those people, they start to live that out every day and they obey from the heart. They do that from the heart. You see, these Jewish Christians were really in that first mindset. Oh, yes, you have to have faith in Jesus, in God's Messiah, but you must also do these things if you want to be accepted by God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. They were saying these are, these are the things that have to happen, and, and so the other way doesn't really work. These Jewish Christians had that mindset that in order to be acceptable to God, we need to do these things. And if you want God to accept you, you must do these things. That's what they were telling the Gentiles. It was a Jesus plus message. How is a person saved? That's the question. The answer is in verses really 7 through 21, but in verse 6 you see a transition. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider the matter. So Paul and Barnabas show up and the whole church is gathered and the apostles and elders are all there and there's a, there's a celebration, there's a welcoming, there's a sharing and there's that, that group that butt in and say, hey, you've got to order them to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And now it seems they've moved maybe into another smaller gathering and they're considering this matter. And I think it's hard for us to understand this, this text because it's foreign to all of us, I think, right? You have to try to put your feet into the shoes of these early Jewish Christians who have grown up all of their lives, they've been trained to see the Gentiles as other than themselves, very different from themselves. They have different worldview, different belief system, different way of life that really comes into direct conflict with how you've been raised and what you believe. The Gentiles are immersed in idolatry. They worship many gods. And they're immersed probably in sexual immorality. That's the kind of things that go on at their temples. And so you've been marked out from them by circumcision, by keeping the law. You're, you've been avoiding them all of your life. And now <laughs> you've become a Christian. Now you've trusted in Christ and your life has changed. And now some of them have come to faith in Jesus as well. 
And so what do, you, what do you do? You find it hard to believe that God would accept them just simply on the basis of faith in Christ when you for generations as a people have been keeping the law and undergoing circumcision in order to be part of the people of God and now you have done what God requires. You've had faith in Christ. Don't they also need to come down the same path that I've come? It's very difficult for us to get our heads around it. But that's really the picture. That's what they're struggling with. And the answer is in verses 7 through 21. You see Peter give them the answer at first, and then Paul and Barnabas weigh in in just a bit. And then the half-brother of Jesus, James, really puts the icing on the cake, as it were. Peter goes first. It says after they had had the debate, Peter stood up. He told them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel. And so he's reminding them of how through a series of visions God had directed him into the path of an Italian man, a Gentile man, a Roman centurion named Cornelius. We read about the story in Acts chapter 10. And Peter went to him and he shared the gospel with him and Cornelius and his whole household became believers. And look at verse 8. Look at what Peter said. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. Peter is saying, guys, I know that they're saved because the Spirit came on them in the same way that the Spirit came on us. That's how we know it. It's the witness of the Spirit. And then he continues on in verse 9. He says, and, and, and God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Think about that. These Jewish Christians have spent their lives making a distinction, drawing a line in the sand. These people are that, and we are this, and we will never be together. They spent their whole lives making a decision, and now Peter is saying God made no distinction whatsoever. He obliterated the difference through faith in Christ. This is, this is the new way, and look at what he says then in verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. It's almost as if the shoe's on the other foot. We're going to be saved by grace through faith, guys. That's the path. That's the way. Now, Peter is, is telling them, listen, we err when as human beings we require more for salvation than God does. We're wrong when we do that. He's teaching them that... that that they're testing God, they're belittling the grace of God. When you say, yes, in order to be saved, in order to be a Christian, you've got to have faith in Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah of God, and then you've got to be circumcised, then you've got to keep the law, and then you've got to be baptized, then you've got to have good works, and you'll be saved in the end. See, and that's not the arrangement at all. That's not how God has designed it. When these Jewish Christians say that these Gentiles need to go through all of these things, they are saying that Moses is greater than Jesus. In their minds, that's how it works. Moses is greater than Jesus. And anytime we say you must be baptized in order to be saved or keep these certain set of rules in order to be saved, in order to be forgiven, we're saying that baptism or your works, whatever it is that you want to fill in the blank with, that's greater than Jesus. But Peter makes it clear. We've never kept the law. Why in the world would we demand that they keep the law? We've had generations to get it right, and we haven't yet. We can't demand them that they keep the law. Law keeping, I, I believe he would say this, law keeping never cleansed a heart. How were their hearts cleansed? What does the text say? By faith in Christ. 
Law-keeping never earned forgiveness. Only the grace of God gives forgiveness to those who come to Christ and trust in him. Moses is not greater than Jesus. Jesus did something Moses never could do. Jesus fulfilled the law. He kept the law. He alone lived a sinful life. And in that way, the law of Moses points us to Jesus. And that's the shift that needs to happen in their hearts and their minds and perhaps in some of ours. The law shows us the very holiness of God. And it shows us how far we all fall short of God's glory because all of us are sinners. We're separated from God. We can't can't earn our salvation on our own. But it also points us to the only one who has ever lived the law perfectly and is now able and qualified to save us from its penalty. And that's Jesus. How is a person saved? Peter makes it very clear. We are all saved, Jews and Gentiles alike. It doesn't matter where you're at on the planet. We are all saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We are not saved by our own works, but by the works of Jesus on the cross through his death, his burial, his resurrection. I love the fact that the good news of the gospel, the message of salvation Christianity, is the kind of message that breaks chains. We, we, we sang that earlier. It breaks chains. It takes the chains off. It takes off burdens. It doesn't put burdens on people. Human religion puts burdens on people. Even if you're not a religious person, if you're just a materialist, it puts burdens on people to carry around because you think, oh, I have to somehow prove myself to be worthy in life. And perhaps if you're religious, I have to prove myself worthy in order for God to accept me. But you don't have to do that, and you never could do that. None of us ever could. But Jesus has done it. He fulfilled the law. And we get in through him. It takes the burden off of the regret and the guilt that we face over our sins and our past life. It removes that burden of how am I going to relieve that? How am I going to get rid of that guilt? Because the Bible tells us that when Jesus died, we're cleansed by his blood. Our hearts are cleansed. He removes our sins from us. And the Bible tells us that, that uh, the, uh, the last part of the good news is that it removes the guilt, not just the guilt of our sin, but it, it gives us righteousness. So not only are our, our sins forgiven, but our righteousness has been given to us through Jesus. Jesus lived a righteous life. So even if you're concerned, I could never live up to these standards. I'll never do it perfectly. You're exactly right. But Jesus has done it, and we get his righteousness. Salvation is a transaction. It's our sins being forgiven and taken from us, and the righteousness of Jesus in, in given to us, imputed to us. That's the good news. The whole crowd gets quiet. If you've ever been to a a business meeting where there's a large number of people, and you know how there's always noise at the, at the back of the hall. People are always in a conversation. The stage is active and people are doing things, but there's always... The, the same thing happens at big church meetings and conventions. People are all over the place talking while folks up front are trying to conduct the business of the meeting. And that must have been happening because verse 12 says, everyone fell silent. They're finally starting to put it together. Perhaps the lights are starting to come on. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they relate what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so you have Peter and you have Paul and Barnabas. And and this is what I think they're doing. They're pointing to the witness of the Spirit as evidence 
that God saves people by grace through faith in Christ alone. But now look at what happens. Now James stands up, the half-brother of Jesus. After they finish speaking, verse 13, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, sign of the Jewish name for, for Peter, he has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And so here's Peter, Paul, and Barnabas pointing to the witness of the Spirit as evidence of how God saves people. And now here comes James saying, you know what? <laughs> here's the witness of the Word of God. We have really known this for a very long time. It's been written in the Scriptures that God would take from among the Gentiles a people for himself. And he quotes from Amos 9 here. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen... I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. He's quoting Amos 9 and this prophecy of Amos 9 is about the restoration of God's people, Israel. But James lifts this passage out of the Old Testament and applies it to the ingathering of the Gentiles to the incorporation of the Gentiles into the people of God. And so the rebuilt tent of David, the restored ruins of the kingdom of David are all fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ who is now ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is the ultimate Davidic king. It's through faith in him that the Gentiles are made part of the people of God. There are not two peoples of God, Israel and the Gentiles who have been saved. There is one people of God. God is no longer working just through one ethnic group, one ethnic nation. God is saving people. He's forming a whole global, multicultural nation of people. The laws designed to mark out the people of God through circumcision and food laws, those are not applicable to us any longer. Christ has come. He's fulfilled the law. Now it's by grace through faith in Jesus that we all get in, and it's really always been that way. What marks us out as different is our reliance on Christ for salvation, moment by moment and every single day. Not on our works, not on being good enough, not on somehow being worthy. It's on what Jesus has done. And all of God's law that reflects his unchanging moral character, you better believe that still applies to us. We obey the law of God in that way because it's a reflection of his holy character. And so in verse 19, James says this, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. He makes it clear we can't require more of people for salvation than God himself does. Circumcision is not expected of these Gentile believers. But we transition to this application that, that living, living grace amongst believers means being willing to make sacrifices for the sake of others and even for the sake of the mission. And that's what you see, I think, through the rest of this text. It's a long piece from verse 22 all the way through chapter 16, verse 5. It, it, it all goes together. But let me start with verse 19. He, he says this, this is my judgment. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. I think it's significant and it's weighty that James is saying this. James, who is a Jewish Christian man, James, who is very likely the now de facto leader of that church in Jerusalem, he's speaking up and he's saying, Brothers, I hear what Peter has said and how God has worked. I see and hear what Paul and Barnabas have said. I see how God has worked by his spirit to save the Gentiles. And I know what the scriptures teach. This is true. 
So he's that guy in the room. When he speaks, everybody else is done talking. The debate is over. (laughs) It's true. And then he goes on. He said, but we should write to them. And this is where it gets odd, right? We should write to them to abstain. There are four things here. To abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Why? Why, James? Why these odd why, they, they seem odd to us. We read them, we're like, what in the world? Sexual immorality we might get a handle on, but the other things, what does that mean? Well, he says, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And so, James is making a pronouncement. You have now this ethnically mixed church. People coming from very different worldviews, very different lifestyles, very different ways of understanding how the world works and how life works, and, and, and just kind of their scruples are very different. But now they're all in one church together. How do we, how do, we do this life together, right? How do, we, how do we manage this? And I think it's interesting that, that it goes both ways here, right? This is a theological debate. Both sides are concerned. The message of salvation has been being threatened. They make it clear this is what the message of salvation is, but now how do we live out this new grace that we have all come to in the same church? And it goes both ways. So the Jews are asked to give up their demand that these Gentiles be circumcised, and the Gentiles are being asked to make careful choices about their eating habits and their relationships. In other words, living by grace makes me willing to sacrifice for the sake of others even for the good of the mission. The four particular things that are listed here are things where the Gentile Christians, because that's who it's pointed to, it's where the Gentile Christians could most easily offend the Jewish Christians who are now in the church as well. And that could also potentially offend the Jews that their Jewish brothers and sisters are trying to reach who have not yet come to faith in Christ. It could be offensive to them. I believe that these four things are really rooted in Leviticus, chapters 17 and 18. They are very ancient laws that God put down because there are some Gentiles living among the Jews and, and he was making provision that the Jews and the Gentiles in those places could have some limited social interactions with one another without compromising the Jews' purity. And I really believe that's where James is teaching out of. That's why he says what he does in verse 21. The Gentiles who are in these areas who have any familiarity with what's being taught in the synagogues know these things. They've heard these things. This is not news in that sense. But he's asking them to make some allowances in their life and the way they live, to be sensitive to their Jewish brothers and sisters in four particular ways. You you could sum up one in this sense, right? Who doesn't like a good potluck? So if you want to get together and have fellowship around the table and eat together, he's requiring, he's asking, he's requesting that these Gentiles, he's requesting that they pay careful attention about where they buy their meat, that it hasn't been offered to idols. And he's asking them to pay careful attention about how that meat has been prepared. Nothing strangled, no blood. That's what he's trying to do. And then that bit about sexual immorality. Most of us probably ring up some ideas about what that is immediately. But if you go to Leviticus 17 and 18 in particular, you'll see that there's, there are laws that are governing about who, who you can marry. And I really think that's what he's trying to get at. And he could be getting at the wider issue. But he's, remember, he's talking about how are we going to fellowship in the church? And what is our church going to look like? And he's saying, brothers... 
Make sure that when you set your marriage policy in your church, you pay attention to Leviticus 18. Because the Romans had a very kind of, for the Jews, had a very disgusting way of uniting people in marriage that were very close relatives. The Jews couldn't stand that. It was very offensive to them. And so God set those laws and he said, here are the people that, you're elig that are eligible for marriage to each other. And James is saying, would you please pay attention to that in your churches so you don't make any unnecessary offense to your Jewish brothers and sisters. If I could boil all of it down like this, I think I could say it like this. You don't want to do anything within your church that would make your Jewish brothers and sisters feel like they got to get up and leave the room because this is what's going on. That's what he's trying to get at. Now, the hard thing for you and me today is that it's 2020 and we're not much dealing with Jew and Gentile issues. So he's like, well, what, what, what in the world does this have to do with us? We're people under grace. The broad teaching is that we ought to be willing to make sacrifices for the sake of others in our fellowship, in our church. There's no biblical requirement on the Gentiles regarding any of these things that James mentions. But for the sake of the fellowship of the body, the good of the body, the peace within the body, and for the sake of the mission that they might be able to reach those who are outside of the body who have not yet believed on the gospel, he's asking them to limit their, their freedom. Think about a church made up of people from different backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different uh, lifestyles, and that kind of thing coming together now. They have to be willing to make some sacrifices for the sake of others and also for the sake of the mission, the people they hope to reach. So as people under grace, we don't make extra biblical requirements of people for salvation, and as a people under grace, we, we choose. We're happy to limit our freedoms for the sake of others. So the letter goes out. In verses 32, 35, you see that the Gentiles, they receive that letter, and they're glad. In fact, it says that the churches were encouraged by it. Nobody was pushing back saying, well, who do those people in, in Jerusalem think they are? Who are these people over there making rules for us to follow? No, they, they gladly made these requested adjustments. And then you get to, to these other verses, 36 to 41. Uh, I, I read widely on this text this week, and so many preachers preach Acts chapter 15, and they preach one sermon, verses 36 to 41, and they talk a whole lot about this sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And there's something there, I suppose, for us, but it's not really the point of the whole chapter. The truth of the matter is, in the midst of this joy, Paul and Barnabas are thinking about another missionary trip, and they have a conversation about who ought to go. Who can go with us? And Paul says, I want us to take, or Barnabas says, I want us to take my cousin, John Mark. And Paul says, yeah, no, he's not coming with us. Remember what happened the last time. That kid came with us the last time, and he tapped out, he went home. He, and he left us, I'm not taking him. It says a sharp disagreement. The language, as I understand it, is a sharp disagreement. Paul and Barnabas, I mean, it's like breaking up the band, right? I mean, it was ugly. It would have been a VH1 video, you know, about, remember VH1? Anyway, it would have been, like, it, would have, it was bad. But they split up. And then you see this transition to chapter 16, the first five verses. You think, are you going to preach to the end of Acts today? No, this is it. Look, look at what happens here because Paul goes out. Barnabas goes out with his cousin. Paul goes out with a man named Silas. And they're, they're on mission together. They go to different places. And the story now focuses on Paul. He comes to Derby and to Lystra 
And we know those places. If you've been here, you, you remember them. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And the way the language is, it, it makes us understand that his dad was not a Christian, mom was a Christian, she was Jewish, he was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and he circumcised him because the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. What in the world? This is an uncomfortable enough sermon as it is. Timothy is a grown man. This is difficult. And what is Paul thinking? I mean, was he, he was in that meeting, right? He's got that letter in his hip pocket. He's going to take, what's going on? As they went on their way through the cities, they, de, they delivered them the observance for the decisions uh, that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Look at verse 5. It's one of those summation verses you see them along the way through Acts. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And almost every time you come to one of those places, you get to the end of a section in Acts. And so I included these five verses because of that, because Luke is summing something up and we're now getting ready to move on to another subject. And then all of chapter 15 relates to those first five verses of 16 because Paul has asked something of his young friend Timothy. And Timothy has submitted to it. Circumcision. The thing that James went to great lengths to say is off the table and is not important. It's not, this is not a decision for, for us to be making. And yet, that's what happens. So Timothy is unique. He's got a Jewish mom. He's got a Greek father. Paul wants him to join the team. He wants him to go with him and proclaim the gospel. But he knows the Jews in those areas are going to say this is a problem. And so Timothy submits to circumcision. Not because he has to. Not because he's becoming a Jew. He submits to circumcision to make sharing the gospel among the Jews easier. He submits to circumcision so that there aren't any unnecessary hindrances as he shares the gospel with Gentiles but also with the Jews. He's not uh, holding on to his freedom. He's not standing up and declaring, I don't have to do this. For the sake of the mission and for the sake of the unity of the church, he makes a sacrifice for others. I told a couple of my pastor friends here at the church that I struggled mightily over this text this week because there's about four things in my head right now that I want to push in on us, but I'm going to leave it because I want you to wrestle with this. I don't know how God's going to apply it to you, but there are some things perhaps that you cling to and you demand your rights, and perhaps you need to hold those a little more loosely in consideration of brothers and sisters in Christ. Perhaps you need to think of the mission and how what you do and what you say might affect the gospel getting to people who, yet, who have yet to hear it and who need to hear it. So I'll let you struggle through all of that and work it in, all right? That'll keep me from getting too far in the weeds. Here's the clear truth. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And uh, I'm wondering if perhaps today is the first day that you've heard that not really the first day you've heard it, but the first day you've really heard it. That's something that only God can do. It wouldn't be about me or anybody else up here saying those words or preaching that message. It'd be about God doing a work in your heart, the Spirit doing a work in your heart. 
and how God wants to cleanse your heart by faith in Christ and give you the righteousness of Christ to make you a Christian, a new person, a new creation in Christ. Perhaps today is the day that you turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. If God is stirring in your heart to do that, you should cry out to him today to do just that. We should be willing to defend the truth of the gospel. We have to stand up at times and say, this is true. And this is not true. We have to be willing to correct false teaching when it twists the truth of the gospel and it errs. And we need to consider carefully how we live out this new life of grace and faith in Christ among our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church and certainly for a watching world who needs Jesus more than anything. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we believe the gospel and we are grateful that the good news takes off burdens and sets us free and gives us wonderful liberties. You want us to live in this world as we do and enjoy it. And at the same time, you want us to be very careful about our relationships with brothers and sisters and those who need to hear the gospel. So, Father, I pray today that you would give us hearts that are shaped by your grace so that we are prepared to freely give up our preferences, to freely give up our rights for the sake of others and for the sake of your name, Lord Jesus. And, Father, I pray that you would give us courage to defend the gospel, to correct false teaching when we hear it. By your spirit, may we live out your grace with one another and those around us who have yet to believe it. Thank you, Father, for the, the teaching of the scriptures, for the word that you've given to us. Help us to commit it to our hearts and our lives today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.